Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Just a heads up that this episode includes discussions of sexual assault. Tamara Cherry, CTV crime reporter turned specialist for hire on trauma-informed reporting practices, former Torontonian and current Saskatchewanian. Welcome to Shortcuts. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. So today on the show, what Leah McLaren is teaching us about trauma-informed or trauma-neglected writing and how publication bans and the identities of victims can sometimes serve to re-victimize them and why Canada seems to maybe be on the verge of finally addressing that. Welcome to Shortcuts, where where we, um, well, we often talk shit about the news, but we also weigh serious media issues of real impact on people's lives. This episode is brought to you by Jeff O'Connor, Joel Leslie, Aaron Finnerty, Ryan Duncan, Eric Brachowski, Aaron Kennelly, Stephen Young, and Austin. I'm Austin, a two-way radio technician in Winnipeg, and I support Canada Land because it makes me feel smarter than my coworkers. About two weeks after the Gian Gomeshi story broke in the fall of 2014, Leah McLaren, then a columnist for the Globe and Mail, wrote a piece called Women Shouldn't Have to Wait Years for Sexual Offenders to Apologize. She wrote that she was impressed by the 
explosive cultural conversation that had been taking place across the country on the subject of sexual harassment and abuse, but noted there was something hypocritical and queasy-making about it that she couldn't quite put her finger on. Until, she continued, I read an essay about the Toronto media community's moral complicity in the Gomeshi scandal and the culture of sexism and abuse it exposed. The essay, which many friends were passing around admiringly on social media, was written by the man who'd groped me. So she reached out to the man, a former editor at the paper, to remind him of the incident. And she found his response to be validating and cathartic. He did not deny it or even contradict my version of events. He didn't lash out or try to discredit me. He said he felt terribly ashamed, and then he apologized, objectively and sincerely, several times. Skipping ahead eight years and one month to last week, the poet and filmmaker Zoe Charlotte Greenberg published a post to Medium headlined, I was sexually assaulted when I was 16. Penguin Random House Canada published a memoir by one of my assailants claiming it was consensual. That memoir was Where You End and I Begin by Leah McLaren, published this past summer. We're going to discuss sort of what happened there, what could perhaps be done differently and more responsibly. So Greenberg wrote of how, when she was a teenager, McLaren and an unnamed boy, both friends of hers at the time, sexually assaulted Greenberg by the side of a pool. Nearly 30 years later, McLaren informed her that she intended to depict the events in a forthcoming book. So Greenberg decided to confront her about it. And to Greenberg's surprise, McLaren immediately apologized. She said she was sorry for her part in it for being an active participant, Greenberg wrote. Greenberg believed they'd just reached an understanding about whether and how it would ultimately be portrayed. And just in case, she recorded the conversation. A couple years later, when Greenberg received the relevant portions of the manuscript, she was horrified to discover that her assault had been portrayed as a consensual sexual encounter. So she got a lawyer to reach out to the publisher, sharing the transcript of her conversation with McLaren. But at that point, Greenberg recounted, the publisher ceased their communication. So Tamara, if a publisher had at this point reached out to you for guidance on how to handle this, what advice might you have offered? Oh my God, Jonathan. Like this whole thing horrifying. Like, it is so cringy for multiple reasons. As you know, like, I do a lot of work around trauma-informed journalism, but you might not know that I actually, I, I've been writing a book. The Trauma Beat. Yeah, I finished my first draft at the end of last year. And what's significant about this book in this context is that my book includes the voices or experiences of more than 100 trauma survivors, from homicide to traffic fatalities to sexual violence to mass violence. And the hardest part of writing that book for me, and it was a hard book to write because it was a real personal, emotional journey and obviously dealing with a lot of heavy stuff. But the hardest part of the book was not actually writing it or researching. The hardest part for me was the, the crushing responsibility I felt to all of the trauma survivors in my book to get it right for them. So I had efforted to get my first draft done by like the beginning of December so that I could reach out to every single one of those people who's named in my book or whose experience is described in my book and ask them whether they would like to review what I had written. And I wanted to be able to do that before I even submitted my first draft because I was so protective of the people whose experiences I was sharing in such a public way. Honestly, like Jonathan, like I had a lot of therapy sessions just talking about this, the crushing responsibility of not just wanting to get the book right for them, but of even potentially causing further harm to these survivors. My whole thing was not wanting to surprise them along the way because my research has shown me, one of the number one things it's shown me about the impact of the media on trauma survivors is how harmful that element of surprise can be if, for example, their story is, is talked about on the news and they're not expecting it 
or an image is used that they weren't expecting or somebody's interviewed that they weren't expecting. So I was very, very cognizant of that. But the point is, I was acutely aware of the harm that could come if I got it wrong. And for me, part of the process in this whole book research project thing is like the ongoing informed consent. So it's about telling them, you know, this is what you're signing up for. Like this could potentially end up in a book, but then making sure that they still consent to it up until the point that they can't consent any longer. So when I saw what happened with Leah McLaren's book, what was so horrifying to me was that she, she reached out to her friend, her former friend, and she said, this is what I'm doing. This is what I've written. And her friend said, no, 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 that's not what happened. And she reached out to the publisher and then there was no further communication apparently, which is just absolutely mind-blowing to me because why are you even reaching out to begin with to apparently get the consent? And I mean, your book obviously is specifically about journalism and trauma and about trauma-informed practices. And I think one thing that certainly Zoe Greenberg seemed caught off guard or surprised by was, I guess, the maybe perhaps the varying degrees of rigor that books may or may not go through. I mean, your book, I imagine, partly because of your expertise and partly because of what it's specifically about, is is likely an outlier. One thing Greenberg wrote, and she felt particularly victimized by not just McLaren, but by the publisher itself and their apparent indifference, or what she saw as their indifference. She wrote that publishers have an obligation to behave responsibly towards the real human living people whose trauma they depict and monetize in their products. And so McLaren and Penguin Random House eventually, after about a day, put out statements. McLaren's was originally behind a paywall on her uh, substack, but she took it out of there. And McLaren said, earlier this week, my reputation and livelihood as a writer came under scrutiny on social media as a result of allegations made by one of my oldest friends, a woman I've known and been in contact with for the better part of 30 years. I am stunned and devastated and struggling to grasp what this means, as well as constrained in terms of what I can share about this very complicated and disturbing situation. When Zoe raised concerns about the draft pages of my memoir I'd sent for her to review, I took the matter seriously. Over a series of emails, calls, and Zoom meetings, Zoe expressed her concerns in detail, and I considered all of them. Based on these conversations, my editors and I made amendments that we felt were appropriate. I did not, as an adolescent child, assault my older 16-year-old best friend at a pool party, nor did I assist in her assault. I stand by everything I wrote. And Penguin Random House, for their part, said... During the editorial process, substantial changes were made to the passages by Leah McLaren in response to Zoe Charlotte Greenberg's requests. We are saddened to learn that for Zoe Charlotte Greenberg, these changes did not adequately address her concerns. We'll use this moment to reflect on our own internal processes and identify ways in which we can best serve our books, our authors, our communities, and our readers. I mean, I think I know why it would not have perhaps raised particular alarm bells for Penguin Random House from their perspective in terms of the actual names are not used in the book, details are changed, and the book opens with a fairly author's note explicitly stating this is not a work of investigative journalism. This is basically, you know, like this is my truth. This is honest, but it's not necessarily accurate, my paraphrase. But I guess the question is where where should the line be drawn, especially now that they've sort of acknowledged that it could stand to be redrawn. So my question to you is what kinds of processes might be developed and what role could trauma-informed approaches play in modes of writing that aren't necessarily journalistic in nature? For me, it's a scary thing. Like, even without any processes in place, for what happened with Leah McLaren's book. Zoe reaching out to the publisher via her lawyer, just her reaching out, that's opening the conversation and it never should have stopped there. So if she's reaching out and if somebody is saying, my trauma is depicted in this book and I have a problem with this, it is absolutely mind boggling to me how and why anybody would not circle back with her after those changes were made. Anytime we are sharing somebody's story of trauma, 
there needs to be some level of agency given to that survivor or Leah didn't need to talk about that part or she didn't have to get into details because if Leah is choosing to write Zoe's story, Joni, as she identifies her in the book, that is Joni's story. That is Zoe's story. Yes, something did happen to Leah later that night. But when you are taking that specific scene and describing somebody else's trauma, like that wasn't Leah's trauma in that moment. That scene by the pool was not Leah's trauma. That was Zoe's trauma. Joni, quote unquote, trauma. You have a responsibility to let them have agency or to you better make sure that they're okay with you sharing that. It is not your story to tell. And 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 Zoe even said that to her at some point, according to this book, according to Leah's book. It didn't happen to you, Leah. It happened to me. That's exactly it. And that was one of the reasons, that was one of the things, aspects of this I found the most startling is that as, you know, McLaren in her statement wrote that she was stunned and devastated and struggling to grasp what this means, but her book very clearly, directly anticipates all pretty much exactly this. I mean, it's not clear. Maybe she's claiming she did caught off guard, didn't know that she was supposedly culpable. But basically what Leah says, as you said, like she quotes or paraphrases Zoe as saying, but it didn't happen to you, Leah. It happened to me. And then she basically gives sort of shrugs it off with Leah writing, when I write my story, I understand that Joni will perceive it as a violation, a burglary of her truth. And we both know I will write it. I've told her I'm writing a book and that is how it starts. This is the inevitability that chills the air around the campfire. The knowledge that what I want, what I will do cancels out what she does not. Yeah. That, that's what I was, I was just going to read yeah. that same, oh, sorry. that same pair up. No, please don't, don't say sorry, John. That's why I'm just like nodding along and I'm looking at this other monitor. That is like where, where she says, I understand that Joni will perceive it as a violation, a burglary of her truth. That word, that burglary of her truth hits me so much because Duncan McHugh, CBC journalist, Duncan McHugh has this great line. He shared it once in this interview I heard from him, and I, I use it in my book, of course, crediting him. You have to be a storyteller, not a story taker. If by virtue of our jobs, whether being an author or a journalist or uh, a doctor who is, you know, doing a sex assault kit with somebody at the hospital, if by virtue of your job, you are extracting somebody else's traumatic narrative, you have a duty to take care of that person and to take care of their story. You cannot just take their story. You need to tell it. And here she is in her own words saying that she knows it will be perceived as a violation, as a burglary of her truth. And that word too, violation, really hits me too. Because one thing I've heard from a couple trauma survivors, one of them being a homicide survivor whose daughter was murdered, and one of them being a, a human trafficking and sexual assault survivor, the way that they described the impact of the media coverage of their cases on them, they literally used the word, it felt like I was being raped by the media. But what I have learned in my journey to and through trauma-informed journalism and storytelling is good intentions are not good enough. You need to be thoughtful in the decisions that you, you make. You need to understand the impact that these can have. And I get it that nobody talked about trauma when I was a journalist. They didn't talk about the impact that our storytelling can have on these survivors, except for how it can empower them, how it can, you know, affect change in the criminal justice system. Nobody told me that, you know, the stories that we tell, they actually have not only psychological impacts, but physical impacts on the people that we're writing about. And we have such a responsibility to take care of them. So I can, I can say, you know, maybe Leah didn't 
understand. She didn't understand how traumatic it could be, but she actually writes it. I don't know how the publisher can be okay with that and then just not have continued conversations with this woman and really think like, do we need this scene in the book? Yeah, I mean, there seems to have also been because that communication broke off at some point. The publisher had said that they didn't have any record of any unreturned communications or anything they didn't respond to. But the fact is the book, those passages were changed seemingly in response to her feedback. I mean, whether how much of an improvement that is is unclear. But I mean, the passages that she cites in her blog post of having the most concern about do not ultimately appear in the final book, even though, Leah, you did use one of the terms in in a Toronto Star article this past summer in which she was, I believe, rebuffing her mother, accusing her of similarly taking a story of hers. There's a pattern. There's a bit of a pattern here, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I find it so, I I mean, it's interesting because it seems like an increasingly outmoded way to approach writing, even to approach literary memoir. The the idea that it's this top-down, centralized thing where the people you're writing about, even whether they're named or not, largely because of the internet, largely because of social media, over the past 10 to 15 years, that distance between the people getting the platforms and the people having opportunities to respond to them has shrunk just enough. And there's obviously still power differentials, but but I think the fact that people are now able to call things out as, no, that's not what happened. No, that's not how I experienced it. Why are you writing this? I think that makes the, the responsibility much more clear. And the fact that what's in a book, as we said, like books are regarded, you know, rightly or wrongly regarded as the most authoritative source on a given topic. But frankly, most of them are not fact-checked or, or don't necessarily go through a journalistic editorial process. Which is crazy when you think about how long the process is for writing a book. Writing a book is such a thoughtful process. It is so much different than me, CTV Toronto crime reporter Tamara Cherry, arriving on scene at 10.30 in the morning and having to file a full package for noon. It is so absolutely different. And, and there's so much more room for thoughtfulness. And yes, you can get down to the wire with some of the, the deadlines, but books, because of their permanence, because of what you just said, like that weight of the, the, the authority that they carry, I would expect them to be so much more thoughtful. And this just seems so thoughtless. I know that they're saying that there was thought put into it, but ultimately, like, yeah, the, the names are changed. But we're all, we're mindful as journalists, Jonathan, as you know, we are mindful that Even if we change somebody's name, there could be ways that they could be identified. In this case, with Leah McLaren, they had this group of friends that all knew the story and all knew these rumors that have been swirling around. Who's this person going to be identifiable to? Who will Joni be identifiable to as Zoe? Well, they're friends that already know the story, right? And so that is basically like giving them this story and and rehashing it for them. Who is it ultimately going to matter to the most that this is written? It's Zoe. There was this one whole chapter in my book that I ended up getting rid of, or like 75% of it. I ended up axing because it was it was very important to me and this the personal connection I had to the story. But ultimately, the brother of the victim at the center of the case, he sort of fell off the map. And I didn't feel like I could get ongoing informed consent from him. And I felt that the stakes were just too high that if I mentioned that story that it could cause him further harm. And Leah knew she could cause more harm and that she likely would. One thing I found fascinating is in the paper you wrote, Trauma Survivors in the Media, Qualitative Analysis, published a little over a year ago in the Journal of Community Safety and Wellbeing, you surveyed 71 people who'd lost loved ones in homicides or traffic collisions. And you found that of those 71, only six had fully positive sentiments about the media. That they shared. 
And one thing you found was that this five the only positive experiences had one thing in common, and that was a sense of control. And, and one of those people I would point out is a traffic fatality survivor whose wife was killed in a drunk driving crash. And he had media at his door within hours of it happening. And I really think that the only reason there wasn't a negative really reported from him is because he was in such a cloud of shock, as he explained in his own words, like he was in such a cloud of shock that I don't think he really understood what was going on. One sexual violence survivor, she said that the feeling she had about the media coverage of her story reminded her of how her abuser was so unpredictable. She never knew, you know, who is she coming home to? And the media is making trauma survivors flinch, and we should not be. Trauma survivors should not be flinching or be surprised by the telling of stories about their trauma, not by the words that we use, not by the images that we show, not by the sounds that we play, not by the people that are interviewed. They should know to the extent that is possible what to expect, right down to like showing them exactly what you've written, what it's going to look like to the extent that it's possible. It's not always possible because of time constraints. With a book, it's absolutely possible. Gender justice advocate Farah Khan, she told me like, you know, we can't focus on eliminating harm. We need to focus on harm reduction because there will always be harm when you are sharing these sorts of traumatic stories. There's just no way around it. Not enough was done to minimize this harm. Publishers have a responsibility. Editors have a responsibility. You know, we have to think about the impact that, that our work is having on the people that have already been harmed by these incidents. It's not our narrative. It's theirs. And if we're sharing it, we can't just be taking it from them. We need to be telling it with some level of agency on the part of the survivor. It's just, it's so vital. Why would we want to cause further harm? This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month 
at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. So on this show, uh, Tamara, we we like to duly note things. I would like to note duly that the uh, TV series WNA has appeared on CBC Gem. I mean, it was previously available on Canadian Netflix, so it's not like it wasn't around or accessible. It's a BBC series, or was a BBC series from the middle of the last decade about the BBC. It's a mockumentary, and it makes a particular type of sense that it would be on CBC Gem because it's something that I've seen over the years on Twitter. A lot of CBC people seem to feel seen by it in terms of their experiences. Sorry, can I just ask? I mean, this probably isn't my... No. But when you say get it... Yes. Get what exactly? Oh, yes, no, brilliant, Lucy. I mean, I might be being stupid. Yes, exactly. No, the fact is, this is about establishing what we do most of best and finding fewer ways of doing more of it less. I've more than once thought about filing an FOI with the CBC to find all the internal communications over the years in which employees talk about the show and perhaps compare their own experiences to it. Uh, But it occurred to me that that would probably just turn up a lot of actual correspondence with the British broadcaster because WNA is the BBC's postal code. And it's really interesting because in a way, the the satire is both savage, but also deeply, deeply affectionate toward public broadcasting and the apparatus of it and the bureaucracy of it, while at the same time being really angry at it and just just marveling at the absurdities. And because it's all in a British accent, it's all, you know, delightful. Duly noted. Tamara, what would you like to note, Duly? The Harry and Meghan documentary on Netflix, because that is something that I never thought that I would watch. I I don't like watching stories about other people's lives, like told in a salacious way. But as you know, as I told you off air before, I've been going through like a really shitty week this last week. And it came a point on Friday that I'm like, I need to turn my brain off and I need to just like watch trash. So I turned on this Harry and Meghan documentary and I was surprised by it because all the media coverage I had seen around it is like, is this going to worsen the rift between Harry and William? And it was all that stuff. But what I saw watching it was actually very topically, considering what we were just talking about, is how refreshing it was to be able to see two people tell their stories in their own voices. Two people that are that are of such high interest to the public all around the world, for them to be able to talk about the impact that the media, as it so happens, has had on them and how that has altered their lives and changed their lives. And because there's been so much speculation and salaciousness, I just, I can't stand it. You know, it comes out of all the tabloids and everything, but us, our mainstream media, it's guilty of it here too. And so I I would like to duly note the fact that it's worth a watch and, and you should watch it and actually listen to what these people are saying, because it was like the most human thing I think I've watched since probably Princess Diana did one of her interviews back in the 90s. So it's- Yeah, and the second episode is substantially set in Toronto where – because the series goes in roughly chronological order and Meghan Markle was shooting suits here at the time. And so there is some interesting stuff about the, uh, the British paparazzi coming over to Toronto and duly noted. Nobody ever told me about my publication ban. Nobody asked if I wanted it. And nobody explained that if I breached it, I could be fined up to $5,000 and spend two years in jail. They said this ban was in my best interest, but I felt trapped. After significant self-advocacy, the Crown agreed to bring an application to the Superior Court, and I was able to ask for my right to speak on May 14th, 2021. This was not a painless task. The offender's attorney opposed my application and tried to delay the hearing by over two months. Begging for my right to speak was humiliating. And the court dignifying the offender with an opportunity to argue why I should permanently be silenced was infuriating, 
dehumanizing and traumatizing. I told myself to remember what it felt like to be shattered by the legal system. And that one day, for myself and for the others I've met, and for those who would come after us, that I would try to do something about it. That was an excerpt from Morel Andrews speaking to the House of Commons Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights in October. The committee was undertaking a study on the government's obligations to victims of crime, and they delivered the report to the House of Commons last week. Based on Andrews' testimony, the report offered a pair of recommendations for how publication bans on the identities of victims and complainants in sexual assault cases could better take into account the actual wishes of those victims and complainants. Uh, we're going to look at some of the ways that these bans have counterintuitively served to disempower victims, how such bans have shaped the coverage we see, and what might happen next. So, Tamara, I'm wondering if you could explain how publications bans typically work in cases of sexual assault and whether your views on them and their utility have changed over time. There's a couple, like, very standard publication bans that we'll see in criminal cases that are likely to garner media attention. One is on evidence that is presented at a bail hearing and or preliminary inquiry that could potentially sway a jury. So, for example, if somebody is charged with murder, it's very standard for the Crown to request or the defense to request. It's just a matter of who requests it first. A 517 publication ban requesting a ban on all evidence presented in court because if a not just a, a juror down the road were to read something first, but let's say a witness who police haven't spoken with hears the story in court, and then goes to police and makes a statement based on the the evidence that was said in court, then a defense lawyer down the road could say, well, did you actually see that? Or did you just say that because you saw that that detail in the media? Was the car actually going westbound? Or did you just read that? Or did you see that on CP24 that the car was going westbound? Because that was said at the bail hearing. So that's one. The other one is in a case of where there's allegations of sexual assault or involving a child victim, child abuse, that sort of thing, that there would automatically be, not automatically, but again, the Crown would say, and yep, and we're requesting a publication ban on the victim's identity in this. And and sometimes that even means a publication ban on the offender, the accused identity, because if there's some sort of familial, you know, if it's open about, or it's well known that it's the boyfriend or the father or brother, whatever, it's it's so standard that it's like, yep, yep. Exactly. I thought it was, like, I, I've been under the misapprehension that it was automatic. If it's not actually automatic, it's basically automatic because these things happen so, I've I've sat in like so many of these things over the years, Jonathan, and they happen so quickly, like, yeah, 517s, yeah, blah, 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 you know, these different publication bounds are just, they're basically automatically granted. So the impact of that, a lot of survivors would agree with these publication bans, because especially, you know, when you're dealing with a living victim, living survivor, I think most of them would be grateful for the chance to have a publication ban at the beginning, because if they're, especially if the complaint is being made and the the assault has just happened, and maybe they were perhaps reluctant to come forward initially and, and scared and uncertain of what the ramifications would be. But as you noted, Some survivors have found this to be very cumbersome when they decide that they want to tell their story publicly, that they want to even be able to send an email to their loved ones. Like that obviously is absurd. And it should be like in in terms of where my thoughts are on this, it should ultimately, the power should ultimately be in the hands of the survivor or complainant, whatever you want to say, because again, it's it's their narrative and it happened to them or allegedly happened to them. And if they want to talk, a lot of times that survivors want to talk, it's after a conviction has already been 
found. By which point it's even harder to get a ban lifted. Yeah, and it absolutely can be. The work that I do with my company, Pickup Communications, is like I, I always say, like I work with trauma survivors and the stakeholders who surround them. So I work with police, I work with journalists. First and foremost, I work with survivors. So I have people contacting me from all over the place, like all over the world, really, sometimes asking me for advice. Recently, I've had, in very recent history, I've had a couple of sexual violence survivors or their spokespeople contacting me and saying, I'm thinking of getting the publication ban lifted on my case. What would the implications of this be? I want to tell my story, but I'm also afraid of what that could mean. That's my jam is having these conversations and explaining those implications, right? But historically, those conversations, those thoughtful conversations haven't really happened. It is, you are either faced with, you want your identity protected or you don't. And they might say, well, I don't want to protect because I want to be able to tell my story, but they might not realize the implications of this. Or they're just not even given the choice. And we were talking earlier in our in our earlier conversation, Jonathan, about the harm that can come from that lack of control, right? What one trauma survivor in my book who's also a, a mental health professional, she described trauma-informed journalism as all about giving them a choice and a voice. You got to give them that choice first, though, especially when it comes to like something legal. How cumbersome to have to, sometimes they're having to get their own lawyers and go and fight and get these publication bans lifted. It's archaic. And it's one of those things that I hope our system recognizes that, you know what, we implemented this at the time because evidence showed us that there could be real harm that could come to these complainants if if their names were published. And so we they did it through a compassionate lens, but now we know more. And now women are speaking more. Now we've had the Me Too movement, all of these reasons that there needs to be a conversation. And just because a publication ban is implemented at the beginning doesn't mean it should be difficult for that pub ban to then be lifted down the road. One of the points that Moral Andrews made in her testimony to the committee, I mean, it's a similar term as we're discussing, but question of control, but particularly the word paternalistic, the fact that I think as a way of looking at this, that the default notion, even for you know good intentions, the default assumption has always been or has pretty much always been that this is in the interest of the person, that they do not want to be associated with this crime, with this event. They would rather be shielded. And probably, I mean, in many cases, that is what would often be the preference. But the fact that that is a decision that is virtually always made for them. Yeah, it's remarkable to the point where I I didn't even realize that there was a decision to be made at all. What the committee is recommending now, what they recommended in their report, which, you know, we up to the government whether or not to bring it forward in a crime bill, but it seems like it's fairly unanimous on this. There's two couple changes. One is that that particular section of the criminal code with this kind of publication ban around sexual assault cases be amended so that victims must be informed before a publication ban is imposed and given the opportunity to opt out at any time in the process. That training be given to crown prosecutors across the country with regard to the needs of victims concerning publication bans. Concerning then all the needs of victims, don't stop at publication bans. Uh, just over a year ago, I was I was moderating a panel with the justice sector, and on the panel, like there was a criminologist, there was a superior court judge from Toronto, and there was somebody from uh, PwC. And they were talking about how can we make the court system more trauma-informed. And then we saw the Nova Scotia Mass Casualty Commission, and that was making a lot of headlines because they wanted to make it trauma-informed. And that, like, there was a lot of debate around that. And a lot of, I had a lot of journalists calling me when that was going on, like, what does this mean? What should it look like? But my point is, we're starting to have more conversations in general about how the criminal justice system can be more trauma-informed and how society in general can be more trauma-informed. And so let's not stop this conversation at pub bans on, on sexual assault victims and survivors and complainants. 
let's let's broaden the conversation. I think we got to sit down and look at everything because just by virtue of what the criminal justice system is, it is inherently offender focused as it should be to a large extent. But victims and survivors are so often further traumatized by that very process that's supposed to see justice for them and a safer community and all these things that there's so many ways that we can do a better job of things. So much of that comes down to having thoughtful conversations. That's Shortcuts for this week. Thanks for joining me, Tamara. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. It was such a pleasure. A real honor to be on with you. We're on Twitter at Candleland. You can email me at jonathan at candlelion.com. I will read everything you send. I wish I were better at replying. I'm, I'm still on Twitter at Goldsby. Uh, and I also have a Mastodon thing that I haven't used and can't tell you what the handle is. Where can people find you, Tamara? They can find me. Uh, Twitter's like the easiest place, at Tamara Cherry. They can find me on my company website, pickupcommunications.com. They can find me on LinkedIn. They want to find me, they'll find me. This episode is produced by Katie Lore with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru, and our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. You can listen ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You can support us by going to CanadaLand.com/slash join. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.